Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Mary O'Donohue about her story, Safety Advice for Staying Indoors, which appeared in issue 22 of The Common. Mary O'Donohue is a writer from the west of Ireland living in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Her short fiction has appeared in Granta, The Georgia Review, Guernica, Kenyon Review, The Stinging Fly, The Dublin Review, and elsewhere. She is fiction editor at Agni. Mary O'Donoghue, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a great pleasure to, to join you, Emily, and, and the common. And anyone who knows me well knows that uh, I value the podcast form so highly that that it is a real treat to to do one of these pieces of work with you. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I'm a huge podcast person myself. <laughs> Would you set the scene for our conversation, maybe describe where you're living, where you're calling from? I will. Um, and my my bio note, as, as you presented it there, it, it certainly fixes me in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. That is where <laughs> That is where I call home, but right now I'm not there. Um, I'm speaking to you from Boston's South End um, because I teach um, in the fall quite intensively at Babson College in Massachusetts. So I spend part of my time in Boston during the semester. and I live in a very little studio. Maybe there's no other kind. Um, I, live, I live in a little studio that's perched high um, above Tremont Street, um, kind of an eagle's nest maybe, um, though not as warm. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm calling from there now. And from the window, I can see the Boston Centre for the Arts, the Calderwood Theatre, with those folded metal wings, uh, the spaceship, mm-hmm. the spaceship that has landed, um, there's almost too much to see in a way, and I'm easily distracted by the ordinary stuff of traffic and dog walkers. So my desk, <laughs> my desk um, is turned to the wall um, in this in this apartment in Boston, and it's under uh, one of my favorite prints. It's a Paul Clay image, the departure of the ships. Um, in Tuscaloosa, if you had called me next week, um, <laughs> I I live in Tuscaloosa with my husband, James McNaughton, who teaches at the University of Alabama. Uh, he's a Beckett scholar. Um, my stepdaughter, Neve, who's 13, and our greyhound, Kuon, um, mm. who is, well, the age is debated in our house, but we think it's, we think it's seven. I, I'm resisting that, that, that he is actually that uh, getting that bit older. Um, mm-hmm. So I live with them and my study there is in the very useful shade of a couple of huge holly trees. Um, and I, I like shade. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I find it useful for writing uh, to, to not be quite so 
um, sun splashed and distracted. <laughs> um, so that's home. Um, that's home. Um, and the south end of Boston is also is another kind of home. It's a it's a place that I've lived um, before Tuscaloosa for, for quite some time. Mm. Those both sound very lovely. <laughs> well, I'm lucky. Yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to have those. And then, of course, there's the other home that's kind of always hovering and circling around that, which <laughs> is Ireland. But we'll, we'll probably talk about that in a while. <laughs> I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read just the first few paragraphs for us? Yes, I would. Th- thank you for asking. Um, safety advice for staying indoors. The farmer's daughter began her fifth period, more excavating, more mortal than the previous. The toilet under the stairs flushed half-heartedly, returning red-brown effluent. Go down, go away, be off to the underworld. She pumped a second time, jangling the handle to make her point. But there would be more. Dark clumps and entrails another six days of the end of the world. A school friend had been on winter holiday in New York and said the toilet at their apart hotel was space age. Legend, like an egg, she said, and the lid lifted and closed by itself and a nightlight under the lid and Bluetooth. A what toilet, the farmer said, Her family wasn't that kind of family, he told her. They didn't have smart toilet money. But it was the trip she was keen on. The whole package, bagels as big as tractor tires, top of the rock, giant stone lions minding a library, legend. The school friend's NYC haircut got more artful the more it grew out. But the farmer's daughter didn't tell the farmer any of that. She'd be told they didn't have New York money. This weekend, nobody was going anywhere. Not to a city, not to an airport to get to another bigger city. They had to stay indoors. No buts, ifs or ands. Indoors was mandated by the news, the weather, the knife-faced government minister tasked with emergency. Even the youngest, blithest meteorologist had looked rattled. When every, la- every day of last year's heat wave boiled the mercury of the day before, she had smiled and bade everyone enjoy. But last night, her voice was coldly instructional. She described an extreme wind field at sea, gathering force and making its way to the coast. Her map was swagged with white weather. She implored her viewers to abide by the precautions. The farmer's daughter wondered if the meteorologist lived for this once-in-a-lifetime call from coast to coast, from point to point. Her father went to the supermarket early in the morning. I'd like you to put down a few things, he'd said. Things you like in case we can't go out for longer than they say. He used squared paper and wrote in capitals. Butter, milk, jam, ham. And on it went the useful humdrum stuff of the fridge and cupboards. She'd added Cheetos and chocolate and ultra-thin pads that said teen on the packet. He slid down his glasses, read carefully. Right, I'll see how it goes. Right. She read about a pill that suspended your period for many months. Side effects included headache, breast pain, nausea, constipation and diarrhoea. 
she would accept all these conditions in lieu of pain that rummaged wide and deep and blood as dense as animal liver. Thank you so much for reading that. I, I love hearing it. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Uh, I will, um, without, without I suppose, taking too much away from people that, that might, you know, um, that you know that, that that might want want to read it. I suppose the, the the concerns of the story are um, uh, griefs, you know, and I'm thinking about grief as both large and small here. The grief of of totalizing loss of someone, and and the smaller grief that is a kind of um, maybe daily one from that occurs from the natural drift and rift that that will happen and does happen between parent and child, um, and uh, and I think my, all of my work is is uh, about language as well. You know how how the language that we speak and and our body language. Um, tries to to contain something you know suppress it or 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 give some kind of voice to it um however small that voice might be um i i i think that would be how i would try to capture the story for listeners i love that thinking about language sort of body language and also what people do and don't say to each other what what inspired you to start work on this story and how did it come together you know, I was I was thinking about that uh, b- before thinking about this podcast because I couldn't actually pinpoint a time when I had an idea for the story. It's it's quite an older story that I have kind of looked at and revisited over time, um, and different things have happened to it, and, and that maybe I'll talk about that in in a, in a short while. Um, but there is a name I I can fix the 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 beginning of the story to an image that that is not in the story um i must have been looking uh, I, w- I must have been looking at a picture of the cliffs of moher off the coast of clare where i grew up um and it may be a photograph that we took um one of the times that we were there in recent years and and there's a sea stack off the off those cliffs it's a rock formation that must have once belonged to the cliffs but is now out on its own um mm-hmm. and it's called on Brannon moor which means means a couple of things it can mean the big raven um or the big prince because the name also comes from what was the main piece or the main pawn in a very old board game maybe we mm-hmm. can think about it as a kind of chess piece of sorts mm-hmm. um but I was looking at that and I thought, under what conditions could that formation, that piece of lonely landscape be fully destroyed, you know, blown away, knocked over, um, which is a kind of, it would have, it could only be extreme, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those extreme weather conditions don't befall my story, but they do put pressure, thinking about them, I think, uh led me to the story um, mm-hmm. and put pressure and constraint on the story, which which does explore what might happen when a, a principal um, family member um, is, I suppose, uh, taken away, toppled. Um, so it started with that image. A lot of my work does start like that. Um, and then it, it moves very quickly away from the image 
probably never using the image in the fiction, but um, I think like many of us who, who write fiction, um, that that opening image is often a way in. And, and I talk about this with my students as well. You know, you can, you can have the image as a, as a, a kind of a lodestone, you know, mm. that you're working away from um, as much as towards. And the, the title the title came much later, but it came sort of in in, to- in total because um, I, I suspect I was reading about the things that are dangerous to do when you are sheltering in place during a storm, mm-hmm. which makes me think that this story might go all the way back to Hurricane Sandy. I, I do have another mm-hmm. story that is specifically set um, in, in that Um you know, uh, and, and because I live in Tuscaloosa as well um, now, and I have for the last eight years, um, which has been, um, is always suspect and prey to tornadoes and was mm. ravaged by one in 2011, um, before, before my time there. Um, but a lot of advice about sheltering in place, you know, the, so there's the obvious advice about don't go out, right? Um, but mm-hmm. then there's the, there's the other advice, which, which we know reminds us that people dangerous things can happen with um propane heaters that Mm -hmm. one might be using in the house and all sorts of uh, other things can happen um while you're sheltering in place um so i started kind of thinking about that um uh, almost like an instruction manual um for for trying to keep yourself alive um in your own home um that so that part came later when i when Mm -hmm. i moved into the story That's so interesting. There is so much that I love about this story. And I really like this feeling of the farmer and his daughter, like you said, kind of being trapped in this house together by the storm. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of privately struggling and and also keeping those private struggles from each other, you know, Mm -hmm. sort of coexisting. And the end has has a lovely kind of coming together moment um, that I won't spoil for anyone. Um, But as any good ending, it doesn't solve all the problems. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Would you talk about creating the two separate mental spaces these characters inhabit and, and like distinguishing them? Did you always plan to write from separate perspectives? Yes, Emily, I did. And <laughs> I have to tell you that there were actually three, um, you oh, know, really? uh, yeah, there was a, there was um, a brother, you know, a, a son um, mm-hmm. that, that I had in play in the story for, for quite a while. But um, I, I mean, I'm, something of an axe woman when it comes to my <laughs> characters and I tend to dispatch them um, from earlier drafts because, you know, and it might be because his consciousness was not, um, not quite emerging as sharply as hers was. And then I became more interested in hers. And I'm, there are parts of he, how he was moving around the house um, that then I came to use for her. And one of them, I think, must have been the, uh, the Nostradamus um, stuff mm-hmm. that, 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 that he was looking that up and getting really mm-hmm. obsessed with it. Um, but there wasn't, there wasn't anything else. There wasn't, there wasn't as much heat, I think, um, surrounding his being constrained in the house. And also taking him away meant that now two people could prowl around one another and I use that word mm-hmm. um you know with with a sort of a gentle sense because the prowling is not necessarily um baleful um mm-hmm. you know 
the rooms are the formal constraint in the house. They are moving from one to the other. Um, you have the sort of typical teenage retreat to the room, um, which is quite familiar to me, you know, it, you know, in, in when I look back, you know, a couple of decades. Um, and so, so distinguishing them when it became just the father and the daughter uh, was, was easier for me. Um, as long as I kept enough writing time between one and the other. So oh, interesting. I, I do remember, and this is particularly true when I was revising the story, I do remember that um, I, I would work on one, leave it alone for a while, and then come back to the other one. Um, so that they kept, they were kept separate, I suppose, in my practice um, in the story. Um, and, you know, I like, I like writing about men um, and I, you know, a couple of my short stories are from the perspective of fathers or, mm-hmm. or proxy fathers or would-be fathers. And uh, I, I just think, <laughs> I think men, in, men have had a tough time um, in, in fiction recently, um, you know, uh, as characters and as uh, from writers. And I, mm-hmm. I just thought, you know, I, I I like to kind of explore to in my limited way, of course, that 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 particular um, psychic space. So I enjoyed writing both of them, but I do, did have to keep them really far apart. Um, and I had to have them doing stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Somebody had to be doing stuff, you know, rather than just sitting on a couch and waiting. Um, so he had to be every so often leaving the house and and working to look after the animals and one of one of which is you know going to give birth in the story um and is possibly in trouble with it and you know so the stuff ha- if as long as both of them are doing stuff um of of different magnitudes then it the keeping them keeping their mental spaces and deepening those perspectives was a little bit easier yeah, I um I could certainly relate to to that part. I, I grew up on a farm, and it seems like yeah. the cows the cows only want a calf when there's like a horrible storm <laughs> or you all know, the power's out. <laughs> I remember you said that to me in in, in the notes. Um, um, they came a little bit later when the story had almost reached its final form, and uh, um, you know, I know of somebody, and I believe that I went to school with him many many years ago who invented and of course it probably involves bluetooth um but <laughs> in it for a good reason um invented a kind of signal li- signaling system that that farmers can use if especially if they have animals that are more far flung and spread right. out you know um would that would let them know that that animal may be actually in trouble and about to give birth so i kind of i kind of wanted to think about and honor that a little bit as well oh i love that yes yes we could have used it <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the the prose style in this piece is really intriguing, but, but I haven't read much of your other work, so I'm not sure if this is sort of your typical style or something that you chose specifically for this piece. But to me, it feels quite dense. Like there's not always like a ton of breathing space or connective tissue to sort of ease readers along. Um, and I, I think it works so well here, but I wonder if you could talk about making those choices on, on sort of a line by line basis. Yeah. Um... I'm, I'm I'm sort of sighing, not out of um, <laughs> despair here, but I'm. It, it is. I think it's a it's a choice and a practice that comes with age. Um, uh, it, it has become an effort 
to do this in my fiction because I think to work with any kind of rigor is to deny those comforts, the comforts of breathing space and Mm -hmm. ease. And I suppose in, and I don't mean to put it, this is not a mortal kind of uh, conception of the, of the practice, but I mean, I have only so much time in which to write, you know, Mm -hmm. um, while doing other things. And I think the reader should feel some of that urgency, which is to say, I'm not giving you a cup of tea. I'm not mm-hmm. giving you a blanket. Um, you'll be here for a little while. And and it's going to be um, not a hurtle, but but I, I like taking away those comforts um, mm-hmm. as a way to, I think, I hope, a- achieve seriousness. I, I think the reflection on the, on a reader's reflection on the work, you know, after reading it might actually be where that connective tissue can get supplied um, mm-hmm. that I that I don't know about. Um, and I know that it's something that I've I've thought about when when I've made sentences. Um, I, I think of sentences sort of as shocks in themselves, syntactically, you know, to stop, to wait, to start for the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like that fairly widely known um, uh, sentence or two from E.L. Doctorow about writing, which is to say it's like driving by night in the fog. Um, <laughs> you, you can see only as far as your headlights, but you can make the whole trip that way. So. Mm-hmm. I like thinking about taking sentences one by one, um, you know, and I've learned from a lot of writers that I admire um, who do this. Uh, but I also think of not just, I, 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 we won't talk about my driving. Um, <laughs> I, I think of driving, I think of writing as breaking sharply in the fog at night as well, mm-hmm. um, and then moving on and then stopping um, uh, without without too much smoothness in that pressure. Um, mm-hmm. And that's more apparent in other stories of mine. Um, mm-hmm. I think that, that, that look at, at other things. The writers that I admire, um, I think, uh, practice this rigor. Um, Joy Williams, Mavis Gallant, Gina Berriolt, who I think should be, should be talked about more. Um, mm-hmm. And... And perhaps in The Stranger of My Stories in more recent times, I think Fleur Jaegi as well is, is, is doing something like that, you know, taking away, taking away the breathing space and, um, and, and the comfort. And it's a tricky thing on a line-by-line basis. It may not be how the sentences get written first, mm-hmm. but I think it's how they get rewritten, how they get edited, you know. That's really interesting. I do think you're probably right that um, making the reader work a little more for it, it, it is, you know, yeah, is not a bad thing, <laughs> and it might lead to them making more connections on their own afterwards, or, or putting more of yeah. themselves in the story, more effort into it. Yeah. So these characters are all unnamed apart from the dog. <laughs> we have the farmer, the farmer's daughter, the history teacher's daughter, uh, but it still feels very natural to me. How did you decide to name them that way? Um, I think, you know, I've become more interested in what can be achieved 
when you take something like a name away um, mm-hmm. and what, what, you, what you have to do more of in the absence of the name when you're working at characterization. Um, so that's one answer, and I, I would hold myself to that approach. But I, I'm also quite bad at names, and I think there's probably a lot of writers that would mm. would, would <laughs> ch- admit this, you know. Um, and then there are stories that I read where I just know that the name, the names came too easily, you know, um, mm. and or else that the names are so extravagantly conceived that that whatever else goes on around that character might not be as rich as as the name, you know? So mm-hmm. it may be that a bland name, if one is to name, um, is is better than, than an, a, a rich one. But, you know, I mean, I've always been wondering if I've chosen a name, is that the right name, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's that kind of stuff. And, and, I would kind of, I won't say I'd lose sleep over that more than other things, but there's just, there's something like, it's an interesting question because uh, there's something oddly embarrassing about and about naming in fiction as well. And it yeah. might be, you know, that it's where I know that, you know, Chekhov has so many interesting things to say about the ways in which artifice you know, the greatest moment of artifice can show up in a story. Um, and that's why he would recommend that, you know, take your take your first sentence away. And I think also the last sentence, he said, because mm-hmm. in those those two places are are where we see the greatest artifice in a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's where that's where why I've taken the naming away as well. Because I mean I know the story is artifice. We know it's fiction. Um, <laughs> right. but but you know let's see if there's something that will ease us a little bit more into that fictional world um, that doesn't clash, you know, artifice with a too strong an effort at verisimilitude. Um, Mm. I have a story coming out in Subtropics and that too is a story that works with namelessness. And there are more characters in that. It's shorter than your story that you published in the common Um, Mm. It's a shorter story, but there are more characters. So there's so more names mm-hmm. uh, taken away. Um, and it is a story that is quite dependent on people speaking to each other. Um, much of the story is set online. Um, so voice and speech was what I wanted to work on as hard as I could um, right. for that story. And then taking the names away compelled me compelled me to do that you know that they had mm-hmm. to distinguish themselves by voice and speech because you know dialogue and speech um you know th- these were things that i just I, I i avoided for a long time or i didn't kind of take any great pleasure in um mm-hmm. but but this taking names away has forced me into this particular position um now the naming of the dog in this story, I mean, the thing is like, why is that so easy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a different kind of a commitment, I think. I mean, I could spend so. hours on that. Um, uh, I have a I have a story that came out last winter in Stinging Fly, where there are three three greyhounds in there, and the main mm-hmm. one, um, the the name for that dog came very easily to me. I mean, it's David Bowie, um, <laughs> and the and the other two um, are. Uh, Heine and Hesse, because there's a German literature influence on the story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have a dog in a story uh, that is um, named after the uh, artist, um, the guy who painted Black Square in the early part of the 20th century, mm. Kazimir Malevich. Um, so I kind of like double names for dogs. Um, <laughs> and then Harley's got the two syllables. And I don't know, he, I thought he needed a name, you know, because he came, he came like in an old badger trap or I'm not a, yeah. you know in a cage in a crate in a, mm-hmm. in a little cage um and I thought well if you if you got away from those people to join this story um to be adopted by the family in the story and then by the story I was like, it just seemed the right and noble thing to do to give him a name and he is a kind of um he is he doesn't necessarily have a viewpoint in the story but he is a kind of um a wandering perspective too, you know, a mm-hmm. visitor to certain moments in the story. So yeah, it was, it was not too hard to name him. Yes, I do. I do think he, he deserves a name. <laughs> <laughs> so you've had quite a career as a fiction writer, but you're also a poet with two collections of poetry. So I'm wondering, are you still writing poetry these days? And, and, and if so, sort of like, does it scratch an itch that fiction doesn't for you? You know, I'm not writing poetry anymore, Emily. Um, now, that makes it sound like a final decision, um, <laughs> which I, I don't want to put it quite like that, but I have not mm-hmm. written poetry in a long, long time. Um, although I had reason to revisit a villanelle um, of mine when I was bringing this story close to its end because I, I wanted to have my eye on that poem. Um, I mean, the villanelle depends so much on repetition and, 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 and key words that keep coming in, dancing in and out of the form. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I revisited that. It's called My Daughter in Winter Costume. Um, and it, it's, it looks at a sculpture that I, it takes a sculpture that I once saw by John Storrs, I think it is, in the Boston Athenaeum, a very stout little modernist sculpture. Um, mm-hmm. So I, if it was inspired by that. Um, but then I looked at it again for this story because I wanted to imagine how it might be written differently from the perspective of a daughter, you know, my, my father in a winter costume or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I, I had it in my eyeline briefly, you know, and, 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 and that was kind of nice, you know, um, but I, you know, I, I sort of took up translating Irish language poetry um, at a certain point, and that sort of took over because I don't think you can, I don't think I can do all three um, <laughs> at just where well, I, I couldn't do any of them well, you know. Certainly, if I if I tried it, um, so that effort in translating Irish language poetry was maybe my my wish to to um sort of repatriate my interests i also mm-hmm. think translation is a is a is a puzzle a whetstone that's really mm-hmm. useful to keep my handling of language sharp um the poets i translate are two living irish language poets louis de Puer and colin bernach and um one poet who who died some time ago sean o'reardon um so so i've i've been working over the several certainly over the last 10 years more actually many more on on translating irish language poetry and you know it, you know i uh, uh i'm uh, uh the poet david ferry is a is a dear friend of mine though i haven't seen him in a while um you know quite a time ago when i was reading from fiction um uh 
I may have said something ill-advised at that public reading, which was um, <laughs> that I, I am no longer a poet, which is kind of an awful thing to, to say. Um, <laughs> and then David said, you're still a poet, Mary. He said, in your fiction, you are still a poet. And I just, I felt so ashamed um, that I had said that. Um, and, and, and also so pleased with his, um, with his generosity and his <laughs> insistence, you know, that the, the fiction was a way for the, the poetic um, pulse to, 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 be, to be maintained. Um, so, so I suppose translation is the thing that's scratching the itch um, mm-hmm. um, in, a, in, a, in a secondary way um, as, a, as, I, as I work slowly on my fiction. That's great. I mean, you certainly do have a poet's attention to language in your fiction. <laughs> I think it's important. I think, you know, I, I think I think fiction has to commit to language. You know, we all like the stories and we like to be rattled along and we have to have these things. But I, I know, I kind of know the difference when I see students who are writing short stories for the first time. Um, and this usually comes later in the semester when they realize how much can be achieved by really careful handling of language. And it's, it, 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 it opens up like everything to them, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, they're no longer then interested in the plot. Plot, or what's that? You know, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm looking at this character's predicament and I'm, I'm trying to honor a certain sort of syntax that captures that. Um, so, so that will, yeah, that will always be my commitment and my, my effort at rigor is in the work with language. When you're not teaching and writing, you are also a fiction editor at Agni Literary Magazine, mm-hmm. uh, which we love. Mm-hmm. And I'm always thinking about how being an editor of fiction affects how I write and read my own fiction. So I was wondering what sort of interplay you find there, if, if any. You know, Emily, you've been so generous to me in this podcast. I, I really want to ask you, I really, I, I'm keen to, in conversation with you, I mean, how, how is it that, and then, and then I'll, I'll think about it carefully. Um, how are you, how do you manage both parts of this life mm. that we have? Yeah. Uh, well, probably by being stretched a little too thin in both directions. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think reading short fiction really, uh, maybe this is depressing, but it really made me realize um, just that, that, most stories that people write are fairly good and fairly interesting and fairly entertaining. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that it, it taught me to focus more on what I could, what I could bring to the table in a story that maybe mm-hmm. other people couldn't. Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, that's uh, lately, that's been writing about farming, which is something that I feel like people mm-hmm. have a curiosity for, but most people don't have an experience of um, and trying to find these, these stories that only I can tell mm-hmm. or, or, or focusing on something like language or like a construct or a conceit or something like that, that, mm-hmm. that makes it a little different just because I think, um, you know, when I read stories in our submission queue, um, I enjoy them all, but there's always, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a grand majority of them, there are similarities, there are sort mm-hmm. of things that feel um, not different enough to, to be fresh or to be new or, or to be mm-hmm. selected in the end. So it makes me think a lot about that when I'm sitting down to write, like, what's new, what's new or different about this thing that I'm writing? Oh, that's a, yeah. That these are great things to be thinking about, um, because 
we have to, you know, and you're right that, you know, you, you described it nicely, I think, that so many things that we read and then consume, I'm talking about published fiction as well as mm-hmm. fiction that shows up in our submission um, systems, uh, you know, a lot of stuff is fairly good, right? It's good enough, you know, it can move us along. Mm-hmm but maybe it can't fully move us, you know, or shock us. Um, so, so yeah, I, 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 I'm interested in your philosophy and it's something that I try to, to practice as well. What is it that's different that I'm doing? And it doesn't, you know, it's not that I want to sort of do something so radically different that it's right. a kind of a rejection of the whole system, <laughs> right? <laughs> Although maybe that's the next act, who knows, <laughs> you know, get into my fifties and then, and then that'll be the case. Um, but you know, I think I think we probably share um, a dedication to thinking about the stakes of things, you know, as editors, mm-hmm. um, which of course then uh, reaches into our own work as well. You know, we're interested in urgency, um, and I, I do think it's important to think about stories as having, you know, a really kind of throbbing intellect beyond beyond wit. And cleverness, you know, mm. I like to sort of be taught something by a story, um, but not that the story would be didactic in that respect. You know, I like to hear somebody's mind at work in a story, um, however that might come through. Um, I'm also interested in what is raw versus what I can tell has been machined. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I would say machines by by um, an industry, um, in a way, uh, and it, it's it. These are all the things that I think we talk about in different ways with our colleagues in editorial. I, I work with um, excellent editors who all have just such a sharp sense at Agni. Um, so I, I work primarily with a small group of fiction editors um my colleague julia brown is editor at large now and Mm -hmm. then i work with three assistant editors ben black ariel courage and amber caron um all of us reading different things um all of us needing to see something new um and as soon as we do see that new thing and, and and share it as something that we might be keen on publishing you know those are the conversations that are are very exciting to have and of course then after you have those conversations you kind of go back to your own work with a sense of okay since i've talked <laughs> can i can my could my work stand that test right you know? um and you know do it so often it can't but um <laughs> You know, and I'm thinking about also working with your colleague, Jennifer Acker, on mm. those early editing conversations that we had. And I think um, she has such a, a sensitive editorial intellect, which comes mm-hmm. through questions about the story, which comes through moments for clarification, um, which is how, how my colleagues at Agni work as well, um, probably because they're better at this than I am. Um, I, you know, I did refer to myself as an axe woman earlier. I'm not, I don't go into reading stories like that, but um, things happen pretty quickly for me again, because there's only so much time um, Mm -hmm. in terms of, of reading and, and figuring out um, Agni, which comes out twice a year, like the common comes out twice. Mm -hmm. Right. So then that really kind of sharpens the, 
the choice making i think um, <laughs> yeah. such a yeah i mean you because you know you don't, you don't publish a whole lot um um in fiction the same way as we don't um you know, so I enjoyed working with with Jennifer, and and then there's also places in an editorial conversation where where you know you have to stand your ground on something, um, and and one of those moments that, that I enjoyed was realizing that um, that Jennifer had um, found, and it, I mean, you know, I like writing about periods, um, <laughs> but some of that stuff, you know, I think. Um, she, I remember her saying it was hard, a difficult, you know, it makes for difficult reading, um, right. you know, in creating a sense of, of discomfort. And mm-hmm. she, it's not, she was not recommending that that go, go away, but I, I found it a, an, an interesting moment to realize that I had, that the work had had that effect. And I fairly sure that I went back in then <laughs> and made it a little bit worse because, <laughs> you know, they are very, you know, Periods can yes. always be worse. Um, so just a, it, it was a tiny moment that allowed me to to, mm. uh, to rethink a little, maybe the little detail or, or something like that. So, um, so you know, it's a great treat to be working in editing myself and then mm. to to utterly succumb to um, the editorial intellect of others. It's it's just been. Uh, a really good thing you know oh it always makes me yeah it always makes me rethink things so yeah thanks for your question and for answering mine as well (laughs) (laughs) yeah thanks for getting me involved (laughs) Ah, yeah so one last question I'm curious what what are you working on now what's next from you well um I've completed editing the manuscript of a short story collection um you know there are stories probably from the last say maybe seven no more certainly stories that's that i wrote and published over the course of the last 10 years mm-hmm. um they're not all of my short stories but but the ones that seemed to hang together mm-hmm. more more companionably um so i've that is that it's together now i'll just use that word it's together um that's great so i'm hoping that then it will move um from that togetherness of, <laughs> of, of editing it and reshaping it and moving one story around in another one um you know that that then might um might you know might get published um and i'm also edging into a novel um Ooh. very slowly uh <laughs> you know after a lot of false starts over the last years i mean i i have a terrible destructive habit of getting rid of things um but i think the things that one gets rid of you know they're worth getting rid of. So this mm-hmm. this this new thing, whatever it is, I think it'll be a sh- very short book, um, is showing up very slowly, briefly in those those fog lights that um, that El Doctor was talking about. So I, mm-hmm. I just wait for it every so often to come into view, um, and I think maybe next week it will. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That sounds great, Mary O'Donoghue. It has been so lovely talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Emily, thanks. I loved this conversation and your generosity and and that of the common. Thank you all. Listeners, you can read Mary's story, Safety Advice for Staying Indoors, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.